This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, Dr. Hamilton Baker of the Medical University of South Carolina and Esteban Rubens of NetApp join us to discuss the ethics and technology of medical AI. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. I love this company. Zipor. Zipor. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the basement of my house and with me today I have a couple of special guests to talk to us all about AI and medicine. Uh, So to do that, first of all, we have Dr. Hamilton Baker. Uh, Dr. Baker, what do you do and how do we reach you? So uh, my clinical role is as a pediatric cardiologist, but uh, my research interest and uh, a part of my career that's taking up more and more of my time is AI. And so I lead the AI hub, uh, which is where all things AI come together at the Medical University of South Carolina. Uh, I also am lead on a AI research alliance that Medical University of South Carolina has with Clemson University. Um, And the best way to reach me is my email address because it is so darn simple. It is just my last name, B-A-K-E-R, at M-U-S-C dot E-D-U. And even though I get an awful lot of email, I'm I'm pretty darn good about getting back to people. So you uh, you work at University of South Carolina and you you interact with Clemson University. Do you guys have problems in the fall? I mean, is there anything that's going on? (laughs) Well, so that's, you know, that's one of the, um, the common uh, misconceptions about our name. Even though we have University of South Carolina in our name, we are completely separate from the University of South Carolina. We are the medical University of South Carolina. And so just to flesh that out a little bit more, uh, we've been around for a long, long time since the 1800s. Medical University of South Carolina has been around. It's based out of Charleston, but we've been expanding throughout the entire state as a healthcare enterprise. And we have a number of different schools of healthcare schools, uh, for example, dentistry, uh, nursing, medical school, and a number of other ones. Uh, However, we do not have a undergraduate or graduate program in all of those other disciplines. And so that's why it made so much sense for us to collaborate with Clemson. That's a longstanding relationship that has had other uh, aspects along the lines of uh, biomedical engineering and other collaborations. But we're taking it in this new direction uh, with uh, emphasis in uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and data science. So we're fortunately we're not, and actually, believe it or not, I'm a Clemson student at the t- uh, current time. So I am all uh, all orange uh, and uh, uh, go Tigers. So I'm doing a master's program in biomedical data science and informatics, and I'm doing that through Clemson. So Medical University of South Carolina does not have a football team, is what I'm taking. <laughs> yeah, not, if we did it, sure wouldn't be any good. But no, we don't have one. Uh, would you? Would, would your Would your mascot be the nerds? Uh, yeah, probably nerdy doctors <laughs> would be our mascot. <laughs> All right, excellent. Uh, so also with us today, Esteban Rubens is here. So you may remember Esteban from previous medical uh, AI podcast. So Esteban, if you could tell us what you do here at NetApp and how to reach you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm part of the healthcare team here at NetApp. I focus on AI and cloud. Having come from the healthcare IT field, you can reach me at estebanr at netapp.com. That's E-S-T-E-B-A-N-R at netapp.com. All right. So we're here to talk about uh, AI and medicine. Uh, we've done this before, but we're going to talk to somebody who actually is, a, uh, I guess, an expert in the field here. So um, Dr. Hamilton Baker is is going to talk us through this. So, Dr. Baker, if you could tell us a little bit about AI and medicine in general, and and what your role has been in in implementing that. Yeah, so huge field, right? Uh, AI itself is such an umbrella term uh, that when I talk to people in the medical field that are novices in AI but want to learn more about it, I really start to break down the different parts. Um, 
I think most folks listening to this probably are pretty aware of the, the distinction between machine learning and AI and that machine learning and deep learning are really just part of the AI pie, but there's also robotics and data science overlaps uh, with AI in a number of different ways. And so when you put that in the setting of healthcare, general breakdown of that really the major areas are clinical decision support you have um, image analysis and triage of course robotics uh, you have precision medicine and it's and it's overlap with genomics uh, and a number of other areas uh, are growing quickly we at Medical University of South Carolina have really focused in on machine learning and data science in most of our work. Although we do have some active robotics uh, research, it isn't really that that involves uh, sophisticated AI at this point. Uh, and so what I really like to talk about when I talk about AI and medicine is what are the next steps? You know, we certainly have reached, uh, I hope, the peak in the hype cycle and are coming down um, that uh, that cycle into a more reasonable uh, view of the role that AI is going to play in medicine. I think broadly, you can separate those two things into research and its clinical uses right now. You can divide it up a number of different ways, but one of the reasons I choose that is because I think that is where we really need to focus in on building bridges, not only bridges between data scientists and physicians and other clinicians, but from the fantastic biomedical AI research that's being done and carrying that through to clinical implementation. And so, uh, you know, that's really where we're going to be focusing on in the coming years. And before we move on, how about this whole insanity? You know, you mentioned hype and it's, I think it's always good to talk about hype versus reality or hype versus hope in AI and healthcare. Do you, how do you feel about calling it augmented intelligence instead of artificial intelligence, just to, to stem that, that crazy hype that a lot of people go down. You know, it's a conversation I have an awful lot and, and I'm all for uh, augmented, um, you know, using that term aug augmented intelligence and so forth. You know, every talk I give, I usually have a few slides on how uh, AI plus a clinician is always going to be better than AI or a clinician alone. Um, I, I think I have a love-hate relationship with the term AI that has grown over the last uh, four to five years in that it still gets everybody's attention, uh, you know, right. with that hype. And I, I think getting away from it, you, you lose that excitement. Um, but I do agree with you that it's probably a term that needs to be replaced in the coming years. And, and I think one way of doing that is as soon as you say AI, you should really identify what particular area that you're talking about, be it machine learning or, or, or another part of that. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think when you look at how much hype there has been, although it has caused a number of misunderstandings and, and misunderstandings and misconceptions, it has energized this area in a way that has been very positive. And I think the attention that has been turned towards the possibilities of AI and healthcare have given us the opportunity to think very far ahead about the ethics of all of this, which I think is another field we are going to have to pay a lot of attention to as we move forward and the, the overlap of ethics, uh, diversity and AI. Yeah, I mean, there's a yeah. lot of things to unpack here, right? I mean, so I, I would say that, you know, in, in addition to augmented AI, you could even call it automated or automated intelligence, right? So you're looking at an automation of data sets to give you a better understanding of those data sets so you don't have to keep repeating the same tasks over and over again as a human, which is going to be rife with, with errors and failures, right? So what you're trying to avoid is the scenarios where this data that we have collected becomes either incorrectly interpreted or mistakes are made. So you're really trying to, to help the people that interpret the data do a better job of it. That's exactly right. And, um, you know, I think there's certainly automation is, is a huge part of AI. And I think that's where we have already started to see the effect of um, AI in medicine. 
is sort of behind the scenes. You know, I think it's probably going on at, uh, you know, robotic process automation and things like that are happening behind the scenes. Uh, and most clinicians uh, on the front lines of medicine probably aren't even aware of it. Uh, I think when you get into the data science, machine learning research and clinical implementation of say clinical support tools and decision support tools, you know, you're exactly right that what we're trying to do is make sure that we don't move ahead so fast with a particular tool that we develop that we implement it without really considering all of the potential pitfalls, uh, not only when you first start to implement it, but the need to monitor a model or, or whatever else, whatever other type of tool you're using for its performance. And the fact that, you know, performance can change over time. Uh, there's an awful lot, like you said, to unpack there and think about before running ahead with some of these tools. And a lot of it, you're not going to really understand until you start to implement it because you're going to start to uncover a lot of implicit, implicit biases that are out there that you aren't, you know, people don't even realize they have, so, you, you know, you have to kind of work through those as they come. But I think the, the greatest concern that people have with something like AI, whether it's in medical or in self-driving cars or anything, is, you know, the, the loss of control. Because they feel like that AI is taking over and it's making the decisions, when in reality, it's, it's supposed to be this collaborative effort between the, the, the AI piece and the humans. <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I, and I think that's why it's so important for clinicians and, and folks in healthcare to educate themselves, because once these tools really do start to hit clinical workflow on a large scale, it's going to be important for us to be able to not only use them appropriately and understand them, but to explain them to our patients so that we can put those fears to rest, because there certainly are not going to be many uh, tools that don't have a human in the loop. I mean, even the most sophisticated ones that are actually making diagnoses are still reviewed by a physician. And, and I, that will be the model uh, for the foreseeable future, I suspect. And I would imagine that a lot of these tools come with confidence levels, right? So you're not just basically relying on the tool itself, but you know, you're given a percentage of confidence of a, of a diagnosis or something else where, you know, you can then look at it closer and, and see if it is truly what is being, you know, given to you from that, from that algorithm. Yeah, that's right. That's how most tools are being built. Uh, and I think that's why it, it, it stresses the importance to be able to understand those probabilities and, and what they really mean uh, and to be able to dig a little bit deeper into how the per prediction or, or whatever is being made um, by a particular machine learning tool or model. Um, I think the only way to get there is to have a, a basic understanding of it. I don't think, you know, all clinicians don't need to run out and do master's programs like I'm doing. I think that'd be totally unnecessary, but I feel pretty strongly that it's going to be important for uh, healthcare enterprises to have basic AI machine learning data science, educational modules for their clinicians as they roll these tools out. Um, they certainly don't need to be deep dives, but I think a working understanding of how these tools are designed. And as you pointed out, the, the biases that they are prone to uh, is crucial. And also at a basic level, what those tools are and what they're not, right? This, there's no big mystery that it's just, yes, yeah, a bunch of math, you know, you got a lot of linear algebra and that there's nothing there that is scary that some people may feel, but rather that it's just using math to get more value, more insights out of the data and kind of coaching it in terms that uh, people will will relate to, taking out some of the um, kind of mystical factor that some people tend to associate with, with AI, right? Yeah, that is exactly right. Um, and I think a basic education about it you, you start to realize that it is just math and statistics and, and a few other things. You know, I think the, the undeniable lack of transparency of a deep neural network is something that, you know, explainable AI is working on. I think that's what people get focused on. Um, and it, it is the case that there are some tools that make predictions that it is difficult to understand exactly what features were driving that. But at the same time, you know, a example that's often used uh, that comes up is, well, very few phys physicians 
understand exactly how an MRI machine works. You know, I, I may right. have it one time in medical school when I read over it briefly, but I, I certainly don't have a deep understanding of that. Uh, but I certainly will look at an MRI and believe what it is. Um, I had that discussion with somebody once uh, with, with a, at a presentation and somebody in the crowd stood up and said, however, someone out there can tell you how that MRI machine works though. And I think that's a valid distinction. You know, I, there are a few types of AI that are somewhat difficult to understand completely, but by and large, you are hundred percent right, Esteban, that it's really just utilizing math and, and other sophisticated methods to get the most out of our data that has really thus far, we've only hit the tip of the iceberg, right? Yeah. And, and that maybe leads the discussion back to what we love the most and that up obviously, which is data, right? So what, what, kinds of data are you looking at at MEOC? Uh, how do you get it? How do you clean it up? Like all the, the stuff that we, like, so maybe if you will, the sausage making part of AI that, that a lot of people don't spend time on, the, the normalization, the sort of data cleansing, kind of all the data wrangling stuff. Can you maybe walk us through how you, you get the data? Does it come from EHRs, from imaging systems? You know, what, what are you using and how do you get it to a ready state? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's, that's like 80 to 90% of the work of the project, right? Is uh, getting the data, making sure it's what you actually thought you were getting, getting it cleaned. And um, so I think that happens a number of different ways at MUSC. And I think as we move forward, we're trying to make that more uniform. Uh, I think starting with how research projects are done, the vast majority of those go through uh, a lot of the times our, our biomedical informatics center at MUSC. And, and it's through the use of our research data warehouse, which is updated, I think, at a daily basis. And so that really is where most of our uh, EHR is is data is captured uh, in a standardized fashion. And so you make a simple data request for what you want. It goes through an honest broker, you get a data mart, and then you can, you know, you can have a ton of data out of the research data warehouse. And, and then you start wrangling it, you start looking through and figuring out, you know, um, you get your data scientists together and, and really make sure that you're going after the question that you meant to go after from the beginning. And that can always be pretty tricky. Imaging systems, there are some uh, images in the research data warehouse, but then there's also separate systems. Um, we're working towards being able, and, and I'm pretty close to the capability of doing near real-time streaming analysis of data um, that, that will probably be more useful in the future. And we're also um, at the Biomedical Informatics Center, there's a, a number of projects looking at bridging that gap between the research data warehouse and the EHR. But then, of course, we have our whole, you know, we're an EPIC center and we have our whole EPIC team and EPIC research team. And so if you, when you get to the point of potentially clinically implementing a tool like a, you know, a sepsis uh, evaluation type tool uh, or, you know, predictive tool, um, then, of course, you're, you're getting into a few different teams along with informatics rolling that out. So, um, you know, I've spent the last five years really trying to figure out uh, all the various details of, uh, of the data ecosystem of our healthcare enterprise. And I have to admit, there are probably still a few areas that are black boxes to me. But in that time period, what myself and colleagues have, are, are trying to do is break down as many silos as possible. And then you have upon you know layered upon that is how do we do it best moving forward, right? And I won't I won't even get into that right now because that's something we can talk about later. But you know, building databases while so that we can take into consideration trying to avoid bias, right? And having diverse, uh, fair data. Um, so it's it's a lot to it's a lot to bite off there. So Esteban, what Hamilton is talking about here is something that's going to create a lot of data, right? So naturally, <laughs> you have to put that data somewhere. So talk to me about what NetApp can do in these scenarios to help with that data and you know build a data pipeline in a sense for these AI and ML workloads. Sure. Yeah, of course, you have the table stakes. You have to be able to store the data. You have to be able to consolidate multiple systems. So that's what we're about as well. The, the elimination of silos by consolidation. So we do 
talk about that a lot, you know, taking your EHR production systems and your EHR reporting and analytics and your imaging systems and your, uh, I don't know, your, your, your scheduling and whatever else and putting everything in the same umbrella. So you don't end up with a bunch of different silos that are not only complicated to manage and get data in and out of, but also they're logistically a nightmare and hard for the IT side to manage. And then you have all the kind of annoying parts of the contra- maintenance contract renewals. And so we we can do everything under one roof. But again, we maybe view that as stable stakes. What goes beyond the table stakes is the ability to move data easily, especially now. And I want to get to that at MEOC because I don't know, uh, going beyond the on-prem. So how does cloud come into this, right? We pride ourselves in being able to seamlessly move data from the on-prem side to any cloud. So everybody talks about this new multi-cloud world. So that's important as well. And maybe the last leg is the ability to help data scientists. So we have a bunch of data scientists ourselves working on tools that they know that data scientists want to use. So we have API, what what basically works out to be API level integrations between our data storage and management layer and the data science environments that people use, like Python or Jupyter or uh, TensorFlow for for you know containerized uh, 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 development of pipelines. So that's and maybe untapped area that we're focusing on a lot because this idea that the data wrangling side is 70, 80, even 90% of the effort in any of these data science projects is obviously something that everybody should work on, something that should be improved. So we want to bring tools to the data scientists so they can do things from, say, within uh, Python to allocate data or to clone data, to share it for other projects or to... uh, Take you know take the idea of GitHub and apply it not only to the code but also to the training data, so that in the end that ends up helping with reproducibility. So you can go back and figure out how you got some result, even though there is some maybe slightly stochastic component in in the training process. But at the same time, there is a problem in general in AI research with reproducibility. So we want to really go beyond the basic, hey, we can store data, to how do we actually help the data science teams get to their their work quicker, right? So that we can reduce that data wrangling side. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a really interesting concept. And, you know, I, I think... Medical University is probably a pretty reasonable example of uh, healthcare enterprises uh, of its size across the country. And you know, historically, as you pointed out, things are so are siloed. Uh, and upon you know, up on top of that, then you have different department. You know, you have IT and informatics, but then you have like research informatics and clinical informatics. And yes. um, so, a question to you would be when you've when you've uh, when you've worked with institutions like that, how do you help bring all those people together uh, and and work together? Because I think some of it would be not only being able to figure out the data side, but the the people side as well. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And and that tends to be the most complicated because there's a lot of politics. And as you know, right, there's the idea that, well, you know, we're IT, so we don't want to touch that because it didn't come out of our budget. And if we touch it, it breaks. Now we own it, and now we have to fix it forever. So what our, our approach tends to be because we come from the IT side, and so those are the strong relationships that we've developed over decades, we start with IT and go out from there with the idea that, hey, everybody can benefit from this. So we know that from a maybe budget side, whoever writes the grant and is awarded the the money controls it. So there's no way to kind of infringe on that independence. On the flip side, we also know that the principal investigator doesn't want to spend all their time 
creating, reinventing the wheel, right? You know, standing up infrastructure and configuring things because that is not what they're there to do. They want to get to their work and to their results. So there is an element of um, kind of, if you build it, they will come. So we have this idea of data science as a service. So we put this environment together and it's this like bright, shiny thing that not only helps with data science, but really any kind of data manipulation, whether you're doing CPU compute or GPU compute, you know, we're fine with any of that. And then we show people that this is ready to go, that they don't have to really do anything and recreate things. They can just use it. So it's almost like bringing the idea of cloud to data science, cloud consumption, because it doesn't mean that you have to do everything in a hyperscaler cloud. Some people want to do parts. Some people want to do none of it in healthcare. There's definitely some concerns around regulation. Some are well-founded, some are not well-founded, but we want to be able to give that experience of self-service, right? It's like you spin up some resource, you use it, you want to kind of move data around, you want to protect the data, you want to make sure that there's no stray PHI, right? There's a lot of concerns that uh, stem from, well, shadow IT and shadow AI. So having this infrastructure that can really do it all ends up, it's almost like, hey, we're we're using the, the honey approach, not the vinegar, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great analogy. You know, I, and an, another question I, I I don't mean to hijack the interviewing process here, but um, another another question I had is if what would happen if you went to an institution where some of that had already been worked on? Like for example, you know, I think there's some work going on at MUSC that's actually pretty mature, and, and I, you know, I. I might misspeak about it, Tad, because I'm not directly involved in it, but in in a way, sort of cloning the EHR, right, so that it's it's uh, a safe uh, step back from the actual EHR itself, so that interaction by API or et cetera um, from vendors or or other folks um, is is a bit separate. So, in light of something like that, if you guys came into an institution where things were sort of already had been done, um, is it is it possible for you to work on top of that or do you kind of have to start from scratch and restructure? No, no, we can. And certainly we, we have ways of doing that more quickly, right? To, you know, you, you mentioned Epic. So whether you're talking about the Clarity uh, environment or Cogito or exporting data in some other way, it really doesn't matter. You know, we, we will take any data source really, and we can work at any level of the development process. So we're flexible in that sense because we have solutions, right? And so you kind of, it's a Lego approach. You, you pick some, you don't have to use them all. You can end up in a good place no matter what, where, because you can start from you know some, some foundation or maybe there's just a hole in the ground, really doesn't matter. It's all about kind of, bringing the right tools to bear at the right time so we can end up in this, like, I don't know, maybe it's corny, but I I heard this at a conference once and I, I liked it going from the data jungle to the data garden, right? And <laughs> everything that goes with that. So we want to just help in that process because we understand that it's really, it's not about the infrastructure. It's not about the data management. Those are just tools. You know, we want to, and, and frankly, <laughs> The, the main idea that we have at NetApp when we talk about healthcare in general, but certainly AI and healthcare in particular, is we want to keep the quadruple aim, aim in mind. You know, we want to keep what it is that we're really trying to do so we don't get lost in the details of this technology or that technology, because ultimately it's about something bigger. So I think that having that North Star, or whatever you want to call it, helps us uh, help our customers and partners better because we're not kind of pigeonholing things and, 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 you know, having to go find nails because we have a hammer. Well, it sounds fantastic to me. <laughs> I'd, I'd much <laughs> rather be in the garden than the jungle. I feel like we are a bit in the jungle, probably a little, a little less jungle than some other places, but you know, I, I, uh, I think it's just a matter of 
getting all the right people in the room <laughs> to talk about things like this. If I come back to visit again, I'll have to bring uh, some other folks like uh, informatics and chief data officer, et cetera. But, you know, I, I sort of propose the idea that um, you should have all of these folks like head of the biomedical informatics center, chief data officer, chief medical informatics officer, et cetera, meeting at least once a week to try and start the process of, of melting away some of these silos. But, you know, um, I haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, it's funny that even something basic like that may not be that easy. You'll work for the same institution and not just yours, like any. And it's really different. Talk about fiefdoms. It's different universes because everybody's busy. Everybody has other stuff to do. So the basic act of sitting together, or maybe not together, but on a call, you know, whatever <laughs> these days. But yeah. And, and so one thing certainly that we see all the time is people speak different languages. You know, the same institution, same overall goals, but the the daily experience and the language that they use is so different that sometimes you almost need to start out by sort of defining what things mean and, and kind of deploying some uh, translation, because otherwise it's not even clear that the conversation is going to make a lot of sense. Yeah, I certainly understand what you're talking about there. I've been in some of those conversations and, uh, you know, I... I uh, had that in mind when I started the um, MUSC, which is now the Clemson MUSC AI Hub. I started it as a grassroots movement uh, away from any particular department, division, et cetera, uh, which uh, made a tougher start and a little bit longer incubation period. But now that I'm through that, it, I've found it to be a great advantage because it has allowed me to float back and forth between these different fiefdoms and uh, as a bit of a, let's say, a, you know, a diplomat. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think, I think having that model at, at an institution, uh, is something that, that folks, uh, should consider. So let's talk a, a little bit about the development process. So, you know, we, we spent a little time talking about data and how to get the data, what types of data and so on. So what's next? Do you have a bunch of data scientists? So, so you have clinical, clinician on, and uh, data scientist collaboration. Can you describe how you get started? Certainly. Um, in my case, it's uh, spinning your wheels for a year, trying to figure out how to do it <laughs> then, and, and knocking on tons of doors to try and figure out exactly how the best way to do it is. But, you know, kind of going through the process, um, I wish I had a bunch of data scientists. I don't think there's all that many places that have bunches of data scientists, especially, you know, that don't have an attached uh, uh, institution. And that's why this relationship uh, with Clemson is so crucial for us. And so we're tapping into data science, and the computer scientists there through this alliance to start to build out those teams. Um, how do you do it? Um, I think it depends on the institution you're at. I spent a, a, a fair amount of time talking to folks that had done it successfully, like UPMC and Stanford, et cetera. Uh, but even at those places, you know, I think there's inevitably some silos and fiefdoms, et cetera. So I personally think the best way to do it is to start out with some sort of a, a separate uh, entity that isn't living in exactly one of those places uh, and start to build from there. I think it really depends on what you're looking to accomplish. I think we're all really want to accomplish, uh, you know, value, good patient, you know, improving patient care, uh, excellence, uh, innovation, et cetera. But those are pretty nonspecific words. When you really drill down on what you want to accomplish, I think being able to accomplish high level research and move that uh, over into the clinical realm is what most folks are really looking to do. And so to get more into the nuts and bolts of that, because I, I started this process from a grassroots level, I think what it has allowed me to, to, to do is to leverage different groups. And so if you look at sort of the more on the research side, you have lots of students at a place like Medical University of South Carolina, and they are bright folks, very motivated and often want to participate in research. Unfortunately, they're not data scientists, but how do you, how do you crowdsource the different tasks? Uh, if you can break them apart and source them out to folks, they learn along the way, they get excited about it, but they don't have to be a full out data scientist. And so I think finding different ways to 
build what we needed uh, without starting out with a stable of, of data scientists is how we went about it. Now, that certainly has some drawbacks, and it would have been great if I had 5 to $10 million up front to, to build an institute and hire sure. tons of people uh, and not have to go after grants. But finding that mix between what the, uh, the true pillar goals for the institution are not only from a clinical standpoint, but from a research standpoint and trying to find the synergy in those, target those projects and and start with the low-hanging fruit. And that's what we've started to do at MUSC. So Hamilton, you know, you have pretty unique experience coming from the pediatric cardiologist side of things. So there's a natural intersection here with, you know, the cardiology and the AI piece, as well as the ongoing, you know, trying to you know, get approvals for the va- for vaccinations for COVID for, you know, kids that are between five and 12 years old. So are, are you participating in some of that research where you're trying to understand the impacts of the vaccine on kids between that age range and, you know, the, the implications of myocarditis with that? Is that is that all something that you're working on or is that something that's outside the scope of what you're doing? No, that's very directly related to what I'm working on. Um, you know, just in my in my clinic when I wear my clinical hat. You know, I actually saw a patient yesterday uh, in clinic that was post uh, vaccine that we were concerned may be one of those patients, and we have seen some at our institution. Fortunately, all those patients are uh, they're getting better. They have complete return of normal cardiac function without sequelae. Um, but you know, to answer your question more on the research side, yes, we're participating in those projects and specifically in my area is MISC, you know, that post-inflammatory process that although is rare, is incredibly severe in some cases. Uh, and we're part of a, a multi-institutional trial that's collecting data so that we can try best to predict and find these patients before they get uh, worse and to the point where they're, they're uh, very ill. Is that similar? Sorry, Justin. Is that similar to sepsis in the sense that there may be a way to bring in some AI tools for early warning when you know b- before that really manifests itself with MISC? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what we would really like to do. Now, at this point, you know, machine learning and deep learning loves data, right? And these there are not that many cases, right? So it is a, right. a bit tricky at this point, but as we build out this database on a national level, that would be exactly what we, we aim to do. You know, the process is somewhat different from sepsis in that it is not a direct is not directly caused from the infection itself. It occurs weeks, but that gives us a real opportunity, right? Because it's usually weeks to sometimes months after the infection. So we have a period there to identify these patients if we can just figure out how to do it. So I think, you know, you're exactly right. It's it's a fantastic opportunity and hopefully one will be successful in. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, you're, you're dealing with something that's pretty rare and something that's not seen that often. So the data set is not going to be as robust as something like sepsis because you get, you know, much less to work with. So I would imagine that margin of error is going to be pretty high in this situations of trying to predict whether or not something's going to happen there versus something like a sepsis. Yeah, you know, it's it's a wide-reaching problem in pediatrics, especially in my area in pediatric cardiology, because we deal with very small populations, a lot of different small populations of patients, which makes both traditional and especially machine, la- machine learning-based uh, research a little bit more difficult. However, there are folks that are really looking at ways to how do we effectively apply this type of research to smaller populations. I mean, the obvious one is to try and bring it on a multi-institutional level so that you can get as big a population as you can. And we've already done that uh, for decades through things like the Pediatric Heart Network and other uh, other consortiums. But how can we look at the methodology itself to make make uh, these tools more effective in rare diseases and smaller populations. And there are folks working on it, but it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty tricky thing. Yeah. As, as with anything, I mean, your result is only as good as the data you put into it. Right. So, I mean, you have to have that solid data set to ensure the best possible outcomes. Right. Right. Both data quality and, and amount are what we're really after. Yeah, and with with larger amounts, I mean, your data quality still is important, but it becomes less important as you get more data points because you can you can kind of average things out. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Like an outlier in a in a, a couple of outliers in a population this size can really uh, throw a, a wrench in the works when you're trying to figure all of this out. But 
you know, I think, I think we're going to be able to uh, get some pretty good results, hopefully within a year or two. Uh, and I would love to build a tool, like you mentioned, Esteban, that was similar to uh, the sepsis tools that exist to be able to predict. Because even, you know, if you think about it, even if only one out of every 10 kid we predict and watch more closely turns out to have it, well, it's such a severe disease that the effort that it takes to monitor those 10 kids will pay off if we are able to catch one case early and uh, and treat that preventatively or, or at least early on. Uh, because if you catch this disorder earlier on, there are some, some, uh, some early data that's showing that that's important. Right, right. And, and so the deployment phase, all the stuff that we're talking about that, that you mentioned, is the general idea to deploy into the EHR. So that's really the way that the inference is going to flow with some kind of warning or, or something happening in the EHR, or are there other clinical systems that you're thinking about for deployment? That's a great question. You know, having worked with EHRs a, a big portion of my career, but remembering the days of paper charts before them, I think that, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages of using it through the EHR. I think a multi-pronged approach would be good. I think certainly an EHR tool that alerts a clinician, but I think in a case like this, you'd probably also want a clinical care team, at least, you know, some part of an FTE of someone who's in charge of, you know, gets a direct alert and then is able to contact those patients directly. Because I think that person to person is is very important. That's because that brings it down to a true sense of responsibility rather than the alerts that can sometimes be pushed off in the EHR right. system. Does that like make alarm, sense? alarm fatigue and all of that stuff? Yeah. 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 So, so something maybe related to critical result pathways, like in radiology or something like that, where it's a more established process for something that's serious enough. It's not just, Hey, you get a warning, but rather there's a process to follow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're working actually on a, um, a similar tool for asthma predictions. We're trying to, trying to, uh, predict asthma exacerbations. So we're using a deep learning, uh, clinical text classifier to try and locate those patients that are, uh, in, uh, at risk for a hospital utilization for asthma, be that an emergency department or a admission to the hospital uh, for an a- asthma exacerbation in the next 60 days. And we've, we've had some pretty good early results, but again, just like all, so many of these projects, it's how do we implement it correctly? And, and will it actually be a great tool once we roll it out? We're not to that stage yet, but that's what's really, I think, where the learning curve is going to be steep because to be honest, there are not all that many institutions that have effectively rolled out a lot of these sophisticated predictive tools and finding out just how useful they will be when you get them into the clinical workflow and and how to take that into consideration from the very beginning of the project. And that's why I think it's so important for clinicians to become educated so that we can participate in the process of creating these tools from the very beginning. Because I think even more so now than ever, if you don't take that into consideration, you're going to be building you know, a lot of hammers that don't have nails. So what do you think there's such a big gap? There's so much research, but to your point, in terms of actual deployment of these AI-based tools, into clinical workflows, I mean, it, the drop-off is phenomenal. So what do you think is happening there? Well, you know, I, I'm glad you asked that question because I've implemented a, a service to try and get at this question. And so at, as part of the Clemson MUSC AI Hub, we've created an AI consult service. And so it's designed for researchers that are looking to incorporate uh, AI or ML into their their work, but might not have the background to do it. And so a clinician with a great idea uh, comes to us and we help them work through that idea. One, to see if there is any appropriate application of machine learning or deep learning or other uh, related sciences. Uh, and two, you know, if, if it isn't the question that they're asking right off the bat, can you change that a little bit so that it, it is much a much more effective project uh, to take on from a machine learning approach. And we've had pretty good success with this. We've only been doing it for about eight months, but we've had, I think, 12 
um, 12 consults now, and we are, uh, we've had three funded projects out of it. So we're looking to expand it. So what I'm getting at, and I actually wrote a, 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 a I'm in the process of writing a paper and put an abstract off to, uh, to Amy about this is if you harvest the projects from clinicians and they're excited about the project because you, they've come to you with your, with a pain point, or you even go a step further and go find their pain points. Then you have them all the way through the process, but this service keeps that person involved all of the way through to make sure that we're keeping our eye on not only making that transition from research to actual clinically implemented tool, but one that's going to be useful and used and not just by the person that came with the idea. We want to make sure that it's a, a shared pain point, not just uh, an individual's perception of a pain point. Right. Earlier, we were talking about data outliers um, and really it kind of comes for full circle back to AI as a, as a general conversation because data, data outliers are the primary reason why people are kind of apprehensive about AI in general, because you'll, you'll hear about something where, you know, AI gets something wrong or a self-driving car kills someone. And then it's like, all of a sudden it, it vilifies the entire scientific endeavor. So, you know, it's important to get those extra data points. It's important to kind of implement this in a, in a more robust fashion so that we get more data points to deal with. And we don't have as many outliers that can cause these issues. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And you know, I, I think we expect so much more from uh, AI systems than we do from ourselves, right? <laughs> if you look at, yeah. if you, and and this isn't just in healthcare, as you mentioned in uh, in motor vehicles, it, it's outrageous the expectations we have for driving. When you know, it seems like every other day uh, I get held up trying to get to work from an accident on the on the expressway. Um, you know, I think when you look at some of the early issues, um, in some ways, I, I've been pleasantly surprised that there hasn't been an, an overkill amount of, of lashback uh, from incidents where those cars or other examples where things have gone wrong. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you're, when you walk into the exam room and you're sitting down with your patient, you need to know how well that tool performs just like you would any other tool. Uh, and, and again, I'm, I know I sound like a broken record, but the only way you can do that is if you at least have a basic understanding of that tool and its results. Yeah. And, and these types of ethic questions aren't isolated to things like AI. I mean, these have been going on in the medical industry for decades, centuries, right? I mean, like yeah. bloodletting, <laughs> is that okay? Right. I mean, <laughs> is it ethically right? Yeah, and it's nothing new. You're exactly right. This isn't a new question. I think, w- along with the hype of AI, it's just elevated the the uh, conversation and concern, uh, maybe even higher than uh, to a point than it really needs to be. I just think it's fascinating that we keep having the same discussions every you know twenty five, thirty years about different <laughs> technologies and stuff. So, yeah, it's so true. It's so true, and I I don't doubt that we're going to continue to have those same ones. But it, it seems to me that we're having it so far ahead uh, on uh, augmented intelligence or, or artificial intelligence types, machine learning, et cetera, um, especially in medicine, because I think it's going to be a longer than most people think to you really have a large number of tools implemented clinically, but that's an opportunity, right? That's an opportunity for us to delve into these ethical issues, bias, um, the medical legal aspects, and really be prepared, maybe more so than we have been for previous technologies. So you work at MUSC. It's an academic medical center. Obviously, those are the pioneering institutions at this point. Do you think the academic medical centers are setting an example for your standard community hospital, for instance, in terms of doing something with AI, is there collaboration that you've seen? Do you think academic medical centers have a role to play in uh, helping the the non-academic medical centers adopt AI tools? I think we have a responsibility to do that, to be quite honest. Um, MUSC has been fortunate enough to acquire a few community hospitals throughout uh, South Carolina in recent years. And I think that gives us a fantastic opportunity to ensure that when we create these tools, or even if we 
you know, create one with a vendor or they're strictly vendor based that we apply that in both the large academic medical school setting uh, along with the community-based hospital setting so that we will be able to quickly provide that to other, uh, you know, our, our implementation strategy, we will be able to supply that to other community-based hospitals. And I think we have a responsibility to do that regardless of whether or not they're part of the MUSC healthcare system. And I, you know, in a state the size of South Carolina, um, we have the opportunity to reach so many people because it the the relationships between places like us and Clemson, et cetera, cover so much ground, so much of the footprint of South Carolina, so that we'll be able to reach into those rural areas because that's what I'm afraid of, right? Is that these tools really only benefit uh, the high powered uh, academic medical centers uh, and don't reach those rural areas with community-based hospitals that really need it and where it could actually do even more good. Right. Right, because they don't have the specialists and, and the big infrastructure, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's really going to be, I think you're going to see a, a, a rise in implementation science around all of this. And I think there are a, a whole lot of hurdles that, that we have identified, but probably a number that we haven't uh, in the process of rolling these out. But I, I am going to make sure as best I can at MUSC that we do that across the board from our, our smallest areas to our biggest areas and learn the subtleties uh, and differences in how to successfully implement these tools in all of those settings. All right. Sounds like we got a lot of things to think about here with AI and healthcare, you know, a lot of ethical questions, a lot of technical questions as well. Um, so Hamilton, do you have anywhere we can find more information about the work you're doing or anywhere else you want to send people to look for more information? Definitely. Uh, I'd love to send people to the uh, MUSC Clemson AI Hub. Uh, usually Google will lead you right to it, but I'll provide those links uh, so that folks can visit that, as well as the Biomedical Informatics Center uh, at MUSC and our combined master's PhD program in biomedical data science and informatics. Thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, absolutely. And again, if we wanted to contact you, we'd do that through your email. Certainly. I, I am great at returning emails. I'm, I'm obsessed with my email. It's baker at musc.edu. And Esteban, uh, anywhere you want to send people to get more information? Sure. The easiest thing to do is go to netapp.com slash AI. And then if you want to look at some of our open source tools, you can go to netapp.io. All right. And again, if we wanted to reach you, how would we do that? That would be Esteban R at netapp.com. Excellent. All right. Thanks so much for joining us today, Hamilton and Esteban, to talk to us all about AI in the medical fields. All right. That music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I would like to thank Dr. Hamilton Baker of MUSC and Esteban Rubens of NetApp for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.